We are back for another episode of the On The Way podcast, exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and uh, we are back on Zoom today with Sue Grimmett in the office. Sue, I always look at that bookcase behind you and wonder <laughs> all the treasures it holds within it. What, what's your favorite book in that bookcase, do you reckon, if you had to pick uh, one? Yeah, I actually think what's more interesting on that bookcase is the little bits of artwork around the place, some of which were done by my son. So all right. I probably point to some of those instead yeah well that's fair enough and then uh we, we got peter cat um back with another one of his wonderful zoom backgrounds saying share a story share uh, start a conversation peter lovely to have you here as always it's great to be here thank you and the background always hides the mess that is my work in progress called an office <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful office uh, at any rate. Um, look, we are, we are thrilled by today's guest. Somebody I think we probably first threw around the idea of, of asking to join us uh, a year, maybe 18 months ago. Um, Belden Lane is an author, spiritual director and academic who has spent much of his life exploring the connection between the soul and the natural world. He's written books such as The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, Backpacking with the Saints, Wilderness Hiking as Spiritual Practice, and The Great Conversation, Nature and Care of the Soul. Uh, coming in from Missouri in the US, Belden, thank you for, for joining the On The Way podcast. Delightful to be here, Dom. Thank you. Uh, now, today we, we're hoping to have a bit of a conversation about um, just what it is that draws us to wild, disconcerting, inexplicable places, perhaps a, a desert or something like that. In times of breakdown and loss, uh, in, in your words, Belden, you, you uh, describe them as haunting places that say little, seem to make no sense, and hide more than they reveal. And what do we experience of God in such places in our lives? Uh, so effectively, it's a, it's a conversation around wild landscapes and soul work, and um, there's plenty of uh, uh, terrain is probably a good word to use here to cover in this conversation, but. To, to begin with, I know this has um, this isn't an academic concept for you, Belden. This is something that on a number of levels has a, a deeply personal meaning, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I find myself uh, uh, craving a god of wild grandeur, uh, especially at those times of loss, absence, uh, breakdown in my life and the lives of others around me. Uh, that being undone uh, by even the metaphorical desert, it doesn't have to be literal uh, wilderness, uh, that I need a God of wilderness who I can count on leading me through the desert. Yeah. 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 And, and you've beautifully explored this um, in, in your work for a number of years. I know the solace of fierce landscapes was that 20, 30 years ago, you sort of began this conversation um, yeah, yeah, and, and but it's one that that more recently has taken on, I guess, a whole new expression for you. Is that is that fair to say? Sure, sure. Thirty years ago, uh, this last spring, I was in uh, Egypt and uh, Israel uh, doing research for uh, the solace of fierce landscapes, and uh, finding myself uh, at the time my mother was dying of cancer with Alzheimer's disease back. Home, and I—I I was a long way from home myself. I was a single child with a last parent dying. Uh, I was at midlife, wondering who I was at that point, and I was surrounded by people speaking languages that I uh, knew very little of. And it's—it's uh, it's, it, 
One fascinating experience there. I was uh, on a trek with, led by Bedouins with camels uh, through the Sinai. We were about 10 miles from Mount Sinai itself. And early one morning, I took up, uh, there's a large outcropping of rock nearby. I climbed up the top of it and uh, moving to a boulder on the far side of it, out of the wind, I was struck suddenly by a quality of silence that I had never and have never since heard in my life. It's what I, I think Elijah spoke of as the cold amamadaka, the sound of sheer, sheer silence that he experienced outside his cave on Mount Horeb. And it just went right through me. And a sudden sense of knowing in that uh moonscape uh god forsaken land in some ways uh i was met by god loved by god as as uh i'd not realized so yeah uh yeah it, it's it's an it's amazing, amazing story and i know there's a, there's a couple of other stories um that, that you've written about that we can touch on as we go but um the, the thing that strikes me about that story and about perhaps this topic as a whole belden is um is how odd the whole thing seems to those who maybe don't have a a sense of, of a spiritual life or a sense of their soul at work. They might think you're going through an incredibly difficult time in your life. Why on earth would you want to go to somewhere barren, somewhere cavernous? Why would you want to go? Wouldn't you want to be surrounded by people and, you know, surrounded by things that you can do to keep yourself busy? Why would you want in, in an empty time to go to something that is, that is so physically empty and barren? Where do you begin, I guess, trying to understand what it is that, that, compelled you or drew you out to the desert in that time yeah what what started me years years ago uh in my writing and my living was a fascination with how spirituality and geography connect uh the place where we experience god uh helps to occasion and shape the experience itself uh, I, I've been uh, intrigued by the role of place in conversion experiences, for example. Saul, Paul, never forgot that place on the Damascus Road where he was struck down. Uh, Thomas Merton would never forget that experience on the corner of 4th and Walnut in, in uh, Louisville, where his monastic, monastic vocation mushroomed. Uh, Luther's Martin Luther's uh, being gripped by the uh, power of justification by faith happened, he said, on the toilet in uh, Wittenberg Monastery. Uh, it, it's intriguing to me that the importance of place in our lives uh, at, at times of consolation and, and desolation. Uh, Ortega de Gasset, the Spanish philosopher, said, tell me the place where you live and I'll tell you who you are. Mm. And I think he also could have said, tell me the place to which you're drawn, and I'll tell you who you are becoming. Mm. So I find again and again <laughs> that uh, I'm drawn to places uh, at different times in my life for different needs uh, in terms of uh, the expectation of, of what, how God might speak to me through that particular locale. Yeah. Yeah, I love that so much. It made me think, Belden, about, um, I guess I was reflecting on my own life and picking up the, the various threads. And I noticed that a, a bunch of years ago, I was in a, a very calm, content, happy place. And I organized a, a trip to the South Island of New Zealand with its, you know, rolling green hills uh, where we were staying in Wanaka and the beautiful peace of the lake. And, um, you know, th this place of kind of immense beauty in, in a really uh, overwhelming way. 
And then, um, and then when I was going through a really difficult time, the holiday I planned was to Iceland in the middle of winter, uh, with blizzards and you know, the, basically the every every place is shut up for the winter. You can't get in anywhere. It's it's as barren and as wild, um, as it mm. as it just about gets. And so it's interesting that this thing we might not notice that it's at work within us, but um, but you kind of draw a link a little bit to homeopathic medicine uh, in a sense with with how this works on a soulful level. Yeah, that's been in, intriguing to me as well. Uh, that's the idea that like cures like. Uh, you you find this is an old traditional pattern of medicine that you you find a cure in what echoes the symptoms of the disease. My mother used to tell of how whenever she had a runny nose and and uh, a, a, a bad cold, her mother would use an onion poultice, hot onion poultice, on her chest. Or have her eat an onion, it, which is interesting. You you uh, develop tears from the onion that has a way of evoking the body's natural defenses uh, for the uh, the uh, symptoms of the the tears uh, and runny nose that you have uh, with the cold. And and I I thought for me too uh, that when you're bereft, empty, uh, barren. Uh, it may be helpful to look for a landscape that mirrors that same emptiness, like like you found in, in Iceland. Uh, Andrew Harvey, that wonderful contemporary mystic, uh, once said, we're saved in the end by the things that ignore us. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. Mm-hmm. That we can only be loved when we're taken wholly outside of ourselves, out of all of our anxious concerns, and in that place that undoes us. We are redone, as it were, uh, by God's meeting us there. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm curious, Sue, I know you've shared a couple of times on this podcast um, stories you experienced in the the centre of Australia, and I was fortunate enough, I think, as we've mentioned, to share some time with with you and some of the students I work with there this year. But um, I think it might have been 2018 you remembered a a particularly vivid dream that you had out there. I'm I'm curious, as you look at your story, do you uh do, do you see that these wild desert landscapes have sort of been what's what's drawn you in in barren times as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting. The um out at um, in Aranda land, Aranda country in Central Australia, I think some landscapes speak on higher volume. Um, and there is, and I don't know if I feel necessarily drawn to the desert um per se. I think it's it's a place that, to an extent, speaks to everyone. You get there, and it has such um, a presence, you know. And and I think it's it's that experience. Yes, I, I did have some pretty vivid dreams out there, but I um you know it, it's an incredible country, and so the the, the experience of, of that country has been unlike any other I think I've had elsewhere. It, it's it's a unique thing, and I I have had the sense of like I certainly feel drawn to keep returning because it, it just feels so sacred. It's the place that when I get there, I feel like kissing the ground a bit. But at the same time, it's for me, I, you know, it, it's always rivers currently that keep drawing me. I love there's something in the becoming of a river that probably that's probably more like the mirroring of, of my own becoming too. And I find myself wanting to walk, walk along um, riversides a lot. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We, we are fed by faces, by places, aren't we? Yes. And to know the places that especially feed you, rivers or deserts or mountains, even even a great city full of uh, anonymity and energy, uh, these can feed us in various ways. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm mm. curious, Belden, um, obviously something we speak quite a bit about on this podcast and in our tradition are the, the desert fathers and desert mothers who um, clearly had something of a sense of this to sort of leave their broader societies and um, move into the, the harshness of the, the desert. I know you've you've spent a lot of time looking into these these figures. What was it that that drew them out there, and what did they find in the desert? Yeah, it's interesting. They intentionally chose a place that uh, would uh, enable them to live the spirituality that they wanted to practice. Uh, they chose it because of its simplicity, its silence. It's a removal uh, from mainstream Roman culture at the time. They left the wealth, the comfort of Rome and Alexandria. Uh, They left a culture that was given to consumerism, militarism, and the careful cultivation of one's reputation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And they left a church that had begun siding itself with the power elite since the end of persecution. Constantine had embraced Christianity, giving it social credibility, and now Christians could imitate uh, the uh, those in high office that could uh, strive for high office themselves, get invited to the right parties, and become significant, important. And the desert Christians wanted none of this crap. They uh, they didn't want to impress or please anyone. They were free to imitate the life of Jesus, who had himself been executed by the power of Roman authority. Mm. So they found that a lot of things uh, you once thought were really important don't matter anymore when you're out in the desert. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm struck by how much when we're moved into a an interior, because I know there is this link between the interior landscape and the exterior landscape. When we're moved into an interior desert, you know, an interior wild place, an interior barren place, how that is almost the first realization is how many things that used to matter so much. Um, I, I can I can remember one particular story that comes to mind as you say this of a friend who's um, who lost a, a sibling, really um, bad health issue. And a few weeks before all of that had emerged, they were really stressed about their kitchen renovation and if they were going to be able to get the right supplies and whatever. And immediately when they went through that incredible grief, there was this sense of, oh, none of that, that, that could not have mattered less. How did I lose sleep over what sort of marble we were going to, how much marble we were going to have for the bench top? <laughs> so it's almost the, the first thing is, is an exposing of, um, I don't know, falsehoods or lies or, or, or just places where life isn't really that, that have been consuming us for a while. That, that exposing kind of is early on in the process, isn't it? Yeah, I, I love uh, the virtue that the uh, desert mothers and fathers valued most was what they called apatheia, a fierce indifference to unimportant things. I love it. Mm. And uh, there's a wonderful story I could share briefly that uh, it's interesting, by the way, that they taught very simply. Language uh, becomes much simpler out there in the desert. There's all we have left from them is a few sayings and a few stories that they used in teachings, offering spiritual direction for people who came uh, in from the city. Well, one in this story, 
once there was a young man who uh, had had heard all these tales about the wonderful desert fathers, mothers. And so he came out to a monastic community west of the Nile uh, where Abba Macarius was abbot. And he came up to Macarius and said, ah, oh, father, I've heard about you wonderful desert fathers, how how marvelous you were. I, I want to be a holy man, too. Uh, I, I, I want to be just like you. I'm only here for the weekend, but can you teach me how to be a holy man? Uh, you can imagine Macaria smiling, uh, <laughs> but he took him seriously and said, well, I tell you, I want you to spend the rest of the day over there at the cemetery. You'll see it just over the rise. And that's where the, all the dead brothers are buried. I want you to go there and yell at them for all you're worth. I want you to abuse the dead. Uh, call them names, throw rocks at their graves, tell them how rotten and hypocritical they were as lousy monks, uh, how the world was made worse for their having even lived. Uh, well, the young man thought these are strange instructions for learning how to be a holy man. But he does, as he's told, uh, comes back at the end of the day and uh, Macarius asks him, well, what did they say to you out there? Uh, he responded, they didn't say a thing. They were dead as doorknobs. That's interesting, Macarius replied. I want you to go back tomorrow and spend the day complimenting all the dead people there. I want you to praise them in every way you can. Call them apostles, saints, righteous men. Compliment them on their holy deeds. Say everything nice you can think of. Uh, how much the world is better because of them having been alive. Well, again, this seems very strange, but he does as he told. Comes back the end of that day, and Macarius said, what'd they say this time? They didn't say anything more than last time, he said. They were dead and silent. <laughs> ah, isn't that interesting, Macarius replied. Uh, they must indeed be holy people. You insulted them, and they did not reply. You praised them, and they did not speak. Go and do likewise, my friend, taking no account for either the scorn or the praise of other men and women, and you too will be a holy man. I, I love the story because what, what he's teaching that young uh, aspirant to holiness is the two great desert questions that are always asked by that terrain. What do you learn to ignore and what do you learn to love? What do you have to let go of and then what do you need to hold on to? Mm. there's always so much dying to be done isn't there there's, <laughs> you know and it's uh, dying to to all the things that are actually about approval or things that are oh. about um yeah. that really don't matter the scheme of things whether they're marble kitchen tops or whether it's i know we've talked before about how sometimes on a retreat you come back from retreat or times in wilderness spaces and it's so hard to re-enter conversations, yeah. normal small talk, and and how you navigate that transition can be quite a challenge. Yeah. But you know, this is mm. this is what that that getting clear on what matters, yeah. and also learning to die to that which just needs to die. And some of us take a bit longer than others, um, but the, it, it eventually, I think, and that that the the book of creation, the book of nature, is what can help oh. us faster. I think than many many words. Yeah. The uh, the desert Christians uh, really found from scripture two ways to read the terrain. Uh, on the one hand, as they, they read the Torah, it was a threatening place, uh, a place that ignores you. It's indifferent to your needs, uh, full of fiery serpents and scorpions. Uh, the children of Israel walk in fear and grumbling all the way through the wilderness. They have to let go again and again. It's terrifying. But it's interesting later with the prophets 
when you get to Hosea and Jeremiah, they look back on that, that. They invite Israel to look back on that time in the desert as a time of romance and love. Uh, that's when Yahweh, Yahweh says, remember how we walked together hand in hand. We didn't have two coins to rub together, but we had each other. And come back, Israel. Let me allure you to the desert, this beautiful place where we fell in love. So it's it's very interesting, uh, depending on uh, what part of scripture you read and where you read it from in terms of that interior wilderness you're facing at the time, uh, what your need is. It, the desert, same desert can be terrorizing and can be incredibly full of love. I think one of the things that I experience in those sort of places is I learn what it is to be truly full and to be genuinely satisfied. And I think that's the thing that is the challenge coming back to our culture, which can be incredibly superficial, uh, driven by advertising that promises uh, fulfillment and satisfaction, um, but it's all illusory. And um, certainly for me, it's there's a deep, deep sense of integration and connection that happens in those places that I just um, absolutely crave to hold on to when I return to this 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 other reality. In a sense, it is another reality. I, I find myself almost having like a sliding doors experience when I move from being in a place where I feel really connected and totally integrated and full um, to then step through the sliding doors back into a completely different world. Um, fortunately for me, I find that um, the Eucharist is a place where that door keeps sliding back to the other reality and... Um, Often when I'm presiding at the Eucharist, I want to stop and say, oh, let's just enjoy this really beautiful moment of connection for about half an hour, shall we? But uh, um, <laughs> I've never indulged myself <laughs> to allow that to happen, but that's sometimes how I feel. Um, so I think, yeah, I think one of the challenges for us is, is how we induct people into that understanding. Because you know, for me, I was having those sort of experiences when I was three, but I had no sense of it being religious. I just had a mm. sense of being reality. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't discover the church's capacity to talk to that space until I was in my 20s. Mm. Before that, it was all about morality and being nice. And who'd have thought that, you know, a church would actually talk about connection to the ultimate being and the ultimate and finding the ultimate in in the creation. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, it, it's funny you say that, Peter, in those sliding doors moments. I know you've shared before um, about how sometimes you find it difficult even to stop in at a petrol station on the way home from a retreat. And, um, you know, you it's the first interaction you have with, with culture, in a sense, um, after your retreat time. You walk in there and they've probably got the... Uh, the radio blaring, it's the products all around you. And it's like instantly there's almost this allergic reaction yeah. to coming back into a life that the deepest part of you knows isn't nourishing. Yeah, and I mean, your reference to the fact you got the radio blaring is just absolute perfect metaphor in that there's this background noise. And if you were to say to anyone who'd been in that space, what was what was playing on the radio? Most people would not have noticed, unless it was a song that actually had some really deep, 
you know, like I know when I go into the supermarket, I know there's music happening most of the time. Occasionally there'll be a song that I have a connection with and I will become present to that noise. Otherwise it's just it's sort of doing something subliminally to me. Um, so, yeah, it's, just, it's a real sign of, of how superficial so much of our culture is and how scared we are of silence, as if silence is somehow... Uh, nothing. Whereas silence, you know, going back to my first sort of idea, it's, it's in silence. I, I it's the place where I feel the most full. Mm. Yeah, and you know what, Peter, as you, as you say that, I, I remember in a, a difficult time in my life, the part of what drew me to Iceland, I think, was that being in it was around Christmas time and being in the the bustling shopping centres in in Brisbane, it kind of felt like um, a, a normal life carrying on when you're in a desert on an mm. inner level feels so uh, painful. It feels almost like that you're not seen, you're not acknowledged, you're the only one sort of floating in this this space of pain. And then I think there is something, I, reading your reflections on this topic, Belden, I was thinking there's something about feeling seen by a landscape that is is mirroring what's going on inside of you. You know, if you're, if you're surrounded by a laughing, happy crowd while you're in an interior desert, that just doubles down the pain. It's like putting salt on the wound. But if you're Ooh. in an empty, barren place, it's almost like God in in and through nature is saying, "I see you, and I hear you, and I feel you." It, it's it is almost like a, an acknowledgement of of the soul. Yeah, I love that sense of of being seen uh, by the other. Uh, those times when I've been backpacking alone, I can remember one on uh, a mountain in Wyoming where I had a deep sense of a, a lion or something fierce that was watching me. You know, you have a sense when, when, when you're being watched, you're being seen. Yeah. And it was uh, uncanny, uh, but a deep way of all, at the same time, taking me back to my being seen by the spirit of God in that same place too. Yeah. Mm. yeah that, look, I, I'm, what I'm really interested in, you know, thinking about this is the way in which we're scared, it, it, and this is such an ancient truth, but the places we're scared to go are often, if not always, the places that we are somewhat called into to going to. And it actually reminds me, I wanted to ask you about a, a book that your daughter, um, on this topic, that your daughter loved when, uh, when she was younger, Mercy Mayer's book, There's a Nightmare in My Closet, um, which I actually hadn't come across the book. After reading, you mentioned it in an email, I have gone and bought a copy um, as a Christmas <laughs> present for my, for my nephew this year because it's a wonderful book that sort of encaptures this idea that the place you're most scared to go is the place that you, you kind of need to go and need to go with love. C can you show you a little bit about that book? Yeah, it's a children's story that I think really sums up desert wilderness spirituality the very best uh, best way possible. Uh, Kate, our daughter, was seven or eight years old. This is years ago, and went through a period of being especially afraid of the dark. And that afternoon, one afternoon, we went to the public library, found this book. It's a Caldecott award-winning book. Lots of pictures, not much in terms of writing. And uh, it's called "There's a Nightmare in My Closet." And she loved it. We had to read it through three times that night. Uh, and in the uh, book, it's the story of a little boy who has been frightened by a nightmare that lives in the closet of his bedroom. 
And one night he decides that he's finally going to come to terms with this nightmare. Uh, he gets his toy army helmet, puts it over his head, uh, gets his toy gun, put, loads a cork in the end of it, and uh, gets into bed, turns off the light, but he doesn't go to sleep. He is armed and ready. And you turn the next page and the closet door creaks open and out comes this huge monster, big eyes, huge ears, long forked tail. And the uh, monster starts to tiptoe across the floor when suddenly the boy turns on the light. And if the boy had been afraid of the dark, the nightmare is afraid of the light, especially as he sees a boy there with a gun aimed right at him. And the nightmare says, oh, please don't shoot. And the boy is torn. He's basically a nonviolent kid. But this nightmare has frightened him a lot in the past. So he shoots him anyway. And the nightmare begins to cry. Huge crocodile tears rolling down his face. Uh, the little boy says, you're going to wake up mommy and daddy. You better be quiet. And the, the, the nightmare is inconsolable. So the boy has to get out of bed. He holds the nightmare's hand in his little hand. That helps a little bit, but he's still crying the nightmare. So he tucks him into bed on one side and then gets in himself on the other side. And uh, before he turns off the light, he says, well, there, there may be more than one nightmare in my closet, but there's only room for two of us in bed. So he turns off the light and they go to sleep. You see this big lump and little lump in the bed, the nightmare and the, the little boy. And then you turn the next page and the closet door opens again. And another nightmare, big eyes, big ears, long forked tail, stepping out to see if she can be loved in the same way as the first nightmare was loved. Well, Kate loved this story. And the next morning, she came running into our bedroom, my wife and I, and she said, Daddy, you know what happened last night? And I said, no, what? She said, four or five nightmares got out of my closet and got into bed with me. I said, wow, was there room for all of you? She said, it was wonderful. She was overwhelmed by the idea that that which her, had frightened her most could become that by which she was loved the most. Wow. And that is the great mystery of our God, who is can seem terrifying to us in all of God's majesty, and yet is absolutely loving, uh, wanting, longing for us more than we ever longed for God ourselves. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I love that story. Beautiful. And that's what the desert Christians discovered, yeah. Yeah. It also reminds us that the um, the voice that we're afraid of hearing is the voice we probably need to hear most, which, you know, Australia, we've just been through the referendum and we were not prepared or we were scared, I think, um, scared to hear the voice of a very small group of people who are really an important part of our culture and story. And I suspect we're having the same problem listening to the voice of the other creatures as we enter the ecological crisis because so much of what I hear humans doing is actually coming up with responses that are actually human focused. Um, so you know, not far from here there's a, a city council that has worked out that climate change means they're going to have less water so they've decided to build a new dam um, the, the location of the dam, the only place they can build a dam is in the most uh, important piece of koala habitat that exists in their area. And they can't see 
So there's no question about should we look at ourselves and work out whether the way we use water is wise or indulgent. It's, oh, well, the, the koalas are going to have to pay the price for us to be able to sustain our uh, pillaging of the planet. And so, but if we were to pick up some of the imagery in other books of yours, we would actually be listening to that voice of the creation and uh, it would be asking something very different of us and we would be learning something very different about ourselves and who we are and where we actually fit. Mm. But it's a voice that I think we're very afraid to listen to. And I think, I think one of the things I get from your writings is we've actually got to go to the places where we are afraid to be and also listen to the voices we're afraid to hear. Yeah, it comes back to being undone by our smallness again too, doesn't it? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. we have to, we recognise that that the world is not revolving around us mm. and that what we are missing is this incredible beauty and awe and wonder when we find ourselves not in the centre of everything yeah. but a part of everything. Yeah. Sometimes it is very embarrassing to learn that about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about, uh, I, I've, I've been to Australia twice, absolutely loved it, told my wife uh, years ago when we first went, if we'd been there 30 years ago, we'd be living there now. Mm -hmm. uh, we just love the place and, and the people. Uh, and I had an opportunity on, on uh, my second trip there to do some hiking in the outback of uh, Western Australia. Uh, near Barabin National Park, uh, about 150 miles or kilometers west of Kalgoorlie. Uh, I, I, I was so impressed at the time of having been invited to Australia to speak, you know, I, thinking I must be something uh, to get to get, go all that far. And uh, I was st still something of a young buck and carelessly set out alone uh, one day, uh, having a couple of days ahead of me, free, uh, to uh, walk what I'd been told was part of a song line, uh, sacred to the Aboriginal people. Uh, one of the paths that the ancestors had taken back in the dream time when they were singing the world into life. Uh, I, I knew that much about the story, but I didn't know the songs or the language, of course, uh, or the culture. None of the paths are marked, obviously. And here I was, an ignorant white fella, a stranger in someone else's land, appropriating a spirituality of which I knew nothing, following a camp, a compass bearing instead of a line of the heart. It's a classic example of the ugly American. I'm embarrassed to even tell the story. And I got lost on my second day trying to find my way back to camp. I was tempted to panic knowing that I'd bitten off far more than I could chew, miles away from any other human being. And But I finally spotted my tent and uh, sat down under the low branches of a eucalyptus tree nearby to gather myself and to ask how I could have been so stupid. And suddenly, a half dozen pied butcher birds, these, these beautiful white and black uh, magpie-type birds, uh, mm. landed in the branches all around me, singing these beautiful songs uh, as if they were scolding and rejoicing with me at the same time. <laughs> as if they were saying, here, you dumb white fella, here the songs you needed to know for this trip. It's sad you never learned to sing them for yourself, but we'll do it for you. <laughs> Beautiful. It was a, 
Amazing. So in short, the desert can show you how much of a fool you are, reducing you to the humility with which you can finally start to learn something. Yeah. Yeah. How many times have we all? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Great. That's it's reminded me we just recently recorded an episode, Belden, with James Allison, the Gerardian um, scholar, and one of his books, as we spoke about, is the joy of being wrong. And there is something in that in that moment of realizing, it is quite a it can be quite a euphoric moment of realizing I have been wandering in the deep weeds for so long. <laughs> Look at all these things I'd convinced myself um, mattered, uh, in, instead of the, the stuff that really does. So that moment of revelation, while it can sound a little bit scary because we, the last thing we want is our lives to be undone in a sense. It, it is one of, it's quite a liberating euphoric experience when it, when it does actually happen. To move into self-observation without judgment. That's the key. Yeah. And, and to me, Belden, it connects. I love the way you talk about God playing hide and seek. Um, because we we like sometimes in the church you know because we have traditions that have helped us and that they help us to usher us in and i love liturgy and it's been and without um the the form of worship that we that that i practice now in the anglican church i find um just holds me it's it's beautiful and rich but we can have a tendency to um limit our vision to seeing this is how we find god you know this is how we practice this and and yet uh there is that sense of that that god is also incredibly elusive and um and that yes we are to seek but often we're totally surprised um yeah. and some part of that i guess that why I, I thought of it then is thinking about our own mistakes our catastrophic failures of course is often where we find god turning up most powerfully you know and the um, our well-ordered lives will often um, defy um, any any finding of God in the more we order it carefully. Um, and so there, this is not a, a God who can be contained and, and um, planned for to turn up at the allotted time. Yeah, we have this uh, Latin phrase, Deus absconditus, a hidden God, uh, a God mm. who... Uh, and yet, this is a God who, like uh, most of our children, when they first learned to play hide-and-seek in the backyard, they would cough or whisper, you know, uh, because the point isn't to to be hidden. The point is to be found. Mm -hmm. And uh, as if God is always kind of coughing over behind the tree or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your, um, your reference to the butcher birds, uh, which I think have got one of the most beautiful songs in the whole of creation, um, reminds me of uh, a poem by R.S. Thomas, which he calls Message, which is um, it's, it's a message. He, he starts off with a message from God delivered by a bird at my window offering friendship. Ah. Listen, such language. Who said God was without speech? And then the poem unfolds and unfolds, and, and at the end of it, the bird says, and I'll come back tomorrow and I'll sing it all to you again until you actually wake up to what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I think as well, Belden, I'm going to use that image of, of God coughing and whispering in a game of hide and seek 
for for many many years to come because that feels like the moment whether you're you're in a, a moment of deep connection with somebody else or looking at a sunset or or listening to a beautiful piece of music it's almost like that transcendent thin place moment you come to is god coughing behind the tree saying you, you got me i'm over here so there is something quite um playful and wonderful and inviting about that it just you, you just have to confront the thing you're most terrified of first often to to meet it how in your life have you um because I, I think probably a lot of people might feel this knocking on their heart in difficult times, but struggle to muster. I don't know if it's the courage or or just the intentionality to actually confront the thing they are most afraid of and go to the place they fear the most. How, how have you been able to, to I guess, find that, that courage to, to go on these missions, on, on these journeys? The hardest uh, example in the last three years, our, our son, John, died of cancer at the age of 40 three years ago, suddenly uh, diagnosed. Uh, my entering into that wilderness and then a, uh, a a vision quest that I undertook with other men from the Illumin work to uh, the Red Rock Canyon near uh, Ghost Ranch. Uh, that was a uh, experience of going into the desert at one of the hardest times in my life and yet knowing that I absolutely needed to go there. Uh, John was a tattoo-covered uh, hulk of a man, working uh, hard construction, um, having made his way through to sobriety through years of uh, alcohol, drugs. Uh, his wife and young four-year-old daughter loved him to pieces like everybody did. Uh, but suddenly, as I said, at the age of 40, he was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, one of the most deadly forms of uh, cancer, and went through multiple rounds of chemo for months in the hospital. Uh, finally was declared cancer-free, rang the bell there on the cancer ward, and went back home to work. But two months later, the uh, cancer returned, and he was dead within a week. Hmm. And uh, a year into my grieving process after that, I realized I needed a desert landscape uh, in working through it. Uh, and as I said, I went to uh, near Ghost Ranch in northern New Mexico. Uh, I had been worried about John ever since his death. I, putting myself in his place, Wherever he was, purgatory, if there is such a thing, whatever on the other side, uh, I knew he'd be as angry as hell. Uh, his life hadn't, having suddenly been cut short right after, you know, 10 years ago, he'd been in, in deep addiction. And uh, yet his life had turned around through AA. Uh, he had finished school. He'd begun work as a carpenter, become a... Uh, husband and father, and his whole life was beautiful again, and then suddenly be, to be snuffed out. So I, I went to the desert thinking uh, I had worked there to, to do to help John through his struggle. And uh, what, what is ironic, of course, is that the first night there, I start wandering off into under the moon in uh, the desert and end up sobbing against a canyon wall and realizing I hadn't come to help release John from his struggle. John would have to come to release me. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what happened. Two mm -hmm. times 
during my uh, desert experience there. Uh, on, on the second night, I, I didn't sleep much. I uh, was on a ridge, camping on a ridge overlooking a canyon and a single uh, mesa, tall butte standing up by itself alone. It's called Orphan Mesa. And uh, as sun rose in the morning, uh, and I was still awake. I saw the sun began to rise behind the ridge behind me, and its light touched the very topmost part of that uh, orphan mesa, and it lit up with a beautiful red orange light. And and uh, having grieved John through the night, longing for him, I, I I had a sense of recognize that's John over there. My red-headed son, he was red-headed, and he was an orphan. Both of our, our children were adopted. Uh, he had come to assure me in his glory on that uh, morning in the sunlight uh, that he was fine uh, and that uh, he had come to uh, give me the courage to do the work that I realized I needed to do there in the desert. And that work had to do with dealing with a god that I thought I'd uh, given up a long time ago out of my fundamentalist past, a god of uh, uh, punishment, anger, uh, demanding perfection, uh, reminding me I'd never be good enough, etc. Mirabai Star says, once you've discovered a god of love, you have to uh, fire all the other gods. And so I realized, <laughs> and you fire God, this angry father who had I, I'd outgrown intellectually, but still, isn't it interesting? Mm. Had a grip on me. Mm. So uh, I, I saw there was a large boulder not far from where my bedroll was spread out, and I used that as an altar. I, I hiked a little further to to get a big triangular rock, it was about forty pounds. Put it on one side of the altar to represent this god of relentless power. And then on the other side, I took some strands of uh, uh, fragrant sage uh, and my water bottle, symbolizing a god of compassion. And then I stood there in this ritual act of boldly speaking to the rock and the sage alike, rejecting the one god, affirming the other. And as I picked up that rock, I, I slammed it down on the boulder, on the altar, and it scattered everywhere, broke into smithereens. I was amazed. And then I dipped the sage into the water and splattered everything within reach, uh, the, the hair on my neck rising, uh, the gods trembling as it were, the whole whole world breaking into song. Uh, it, it was a wonderful sense of release. Mm. And so by the time I got to the last night, you know, I went, I can't expect any more out of this. But but they tell you, you know, on a vision quest that it's that last night when uh, the, the big thing comes. Well, I waited for hours and hours. And of course, nothing came, which was perfect. Uh, I finally said about two or three or four in the morning, I went back to that night of John's death in the hospital room where his wife and Patricia, my wife, and I were uh, with him. He finally stopped breathing at three o'clock in the morning. We were uh, exhausted, and Katie, his his wife, just needed to get home. 
I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay there with his body for the rest of the, the night. I, I didn't want some stranger coming in and putting his body on a uh, metal tray, taking him down to a morgue uh, alone. Uh, but I, I, I went with them to go home. But it, but it struck me that night there, that last night on the ridge uh, near Ghost Ranch, that I could still, it might be a year later, but I could still uh, sit vigil with John. And so I decided I will simply sit here being awake the rest of the night, honoring John as if he's there across the canyon, uh, the Orphan Mesa. And then within an hour, the moon rose. And it rose behind me, and the light of the moon came uh, casting a soft slate gray light on the top of the uh, mesa, even as the sun had done a few days earlier. It was cold and death-like, but it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. The paleness of my son's body drained of life for me, in, in a sense, the body of Christ. That, that John had come for me uh, yet again to assure me like... Uh, Julian of Norwich, that all will be well. All manner of things will be well. And so God's, God's coming, John's coming, both of them, indistinguishable in that Orphan Mesa was uh, one of the most recent and most powerful healing moments of my having to go into the desert where I, I didn't want to go. I, I wanted to do it for John's sake, realizing I had to do it for my sake all along. Hmm. That's a that's just a remarkable story, Belden. Thank you for for sharing mm -hmm. something so uh, vulnerable and so personal to you. But I mean, that's such a an incredible, I think, um, example or, or shining light to us of of what the desert can do and, and how it can work with our soul. Um, barren meets barren, and life breaks through. It's sort of it's that whole idea that that one plus one doesn't equal two. It sort of equals infinity in that scenario in a, in a bizarre way. And and one thing that stands out to me about it is that. Um, and maybe this is true of, of all desert experiences in this sense, is we often might embark on them with a certain sense of the healing we're looking for. And the healing that we find in the desert is, is if it's going to be true healing, it's probably going to be something very different to the healing we'd intended or, or sought out initially. It's, we'll come with our agendas of this is the exact healing I want, this is how it, it's going to work out. And, and if we are to be healed... I almost want to make a universal statement that it's 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 probably going to be a very different healing to what we we anticipated. Is do you agree with that? Oh, doesn't God have a great sense of humor? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's because we need all of the agendas broken down and broken through. Um, right. We head to the desert with our agendas that this I'm in this sort of pain and I want this sort of healing. And we, we need all of that stripped away before the, the true healing can actually can actually take place in a much bigger, much deeper, much, much vaster way. And, and Belden, I'm curious, uh, you know, a number of years on from that story you've just shared, is the compulsion, is the call of the desert, of, of desert landscapes, is it still there for you surrounding this, this grief that you have journeyed through? Or, or has the call uh, from a landscape point of view morphed into into a call to mountains now or to lakes or to something different but where does that where does that pop up for you now there is a hundred year old cottonwood tree across the, in the park across the street from our house that um i was introduced to 30 years ago 
at the time when my mother was dying and at a time when the tree, it had two great trunks growing from its roots. One was blown down by a fierce storm and lightning. And uh, we, we met at a time when the tree and I were both wounded. And uh, he, has be, he is a male cottonwood tree. Uh, he has been a great presence in my life. And, you know, I turned 80 this summer. Uh, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but I'm not uh, able to do the desert uh, hiking that I used to and loved. And uh, But I can walk over the park and I can lean into the hollow of a grandfather's side and practice uh, my contemplative prayer there. And it is marvelous. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I haven't given up uh, some desert time yet. But uh, I, I, I think trees, especially in this, the last book, The Great Conversation, where I talk more about grandfather at the tree, mm. uh, trees have been a profound sense of uh, mediating uh, wisdom and the holy to me. Mm. I think everything you're saying, too, points to the fact that um, the holy is always speaking through nature. Mm. It's always going on, whichever landscape we are in. Um, but, you know, I sometimes can find myself, you know, going so quickly through the day and you realise you haven't stopped and noticed that tree outside. I haven't looked at the stars for days, that mm. kind of thing. And uh, also the, the problem that we're faced with sometimes when we have uh, only a short time off from work is that it takes longer to come to actually quiet yourself so that you can start to hear what what is being said through nature, that you can pay attention uh, and that's where contemplative practices I know in my life I've found very helpful because it's meant that that gap of time, um, it used to take me a lot longer. And I, I, I put that down to regular habits of meditation and silence that that you're able to find that silence just a bit sooner than I used to be able to. And mm. then when you're in that place, then, then the nature, which is always communicating, it's like my ears are adjusted and I'm able to listen. Yeah, I think that's right, Sue. I, uh, I I still like to get out on the edge of wilderness. Uh, this summer, we were in uh, northwest uh, Wyoming, uh, not far from the Tetons and, and Yellowstone, uh, at a place called Ring Lake Ranch. Uh, I was leading a retreat and uh, was fascinated by mule deer that I would watch in the evening and also heard of a grizzly bear that had been sighted. We were warned not to take one of the trails uh, up to a particular lake. And I realized that uh, although I wasn't getting up and in the wild places so much anymore, I was right on the edge. And that uh, grizzly bear might well be uh, taking down one of those uh, older mule deer uh, with her three-inch claws uh, and giving the bloody innards to her children to feed them. And uh, reminded again that uh, we do live in a nature that is wild uh, and wondrous uh, and that I want to honor the mystery, even while uh, staying away from the wild places where it might be particularly dangerous. And, and yet recognizing that the course of nature is that we all eat and in turn we are eaten. And if we can see this as a sacramental mystery, as, as Eucharistic, 
Uh, it's an amazing thing. In that same place years ago, uh, we spent a month in a cabin uh, there at Ring Lake Ranch and was invited to a meal one night uh, with uh, a, a friend who's was a, a bow hunter and uh, had gotten a uh, tag to uh, hit, uh, take down a cougar. And we were invited to have mountain lion stew for dinner. And I couldn't imagine eating a beautiful, powerful animal like that. So we created a ritual uh, honoring the animal, the territory that it lived in, uh, knowing he held, held, held a responsibility for the well-being of everything there. We vowed to do the same to the extent that we could, uh, asking that our audacity and eating might be lessened by the awe with which we ate. Our deepest desire was to become what we ate. Mm. And to recognize mm. that sacramental Eucharistic bond that we share with the whole of nature, we dare not call it something red in tooth and claw, just, just awful. But it is a deep mystery that God invites us into a crucifixion and resurrection that we participate in at every meal. Uh, and this this sense of being bound together with all of the others in this great wild mystery is what is driving me uh, crazy with love in these last few years of my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful, Belden. And it, it's such a long way, isn't it, from the supermarkets with their perfectly proportioned out uh, <laughs> sections of meat yep. in their plastic containers. It, 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 um, mm. No wonder that people maybe are struggling, uh, many of us are struggling to see this wild mystery in the way you speak of it when well, you're in a world that has um, packaged it all up so so perfectly and precisely. So hopefully that's enough of a desert call then for uh, for, for a couple of people listening into this to to maybe find a place um, that, that is in some degree of wilderness and, and head out there and, and see what happens. Because while it might seem a little bit less uh, appealing or appetizing or desirable at first than the island resort holiday, uh, it does <laughs> seem that when you actually, when you confront that fear, when you head out there, you, you find something... Um, pretty, pretty odd, pretty uh, at times scary and concerning, but in the long run, pretty remarkable um, in, in unspeakable ways. So Belden, your work has been incredible for, for many years and people can um, find your books online as well. Thank you so much for, for joining us for a conversation today. Really appreciate it. Mm, yeah, thank well, you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.